This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've heard a lot about um, an increase to the minimum wage. Uh, right now, public uh, meetings are going on in regards to the minimum wage increase uh, to $15 an hour. And labor reforms, an op-ed in the Huffington Post suggested that minimum wage increases will affect the impoverished. Could that possibly be the case? Tom Cooper joins us, director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, nice to have you back on the show. Hey, Jamie. Good to hear from you. Thank you. So um, the thinking here is that, okay, uh, we raise the minimum wage from $11.40, which is its current level, to $15.00. Uh, and to be clear for our audience, the increase is planned to take effect in two stages. It'll mm-hmm. go go to fourteen dollars on January first, twenty eighteen, next summer, or yep. next 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 January. Sorry, and then fifteen dollars on January first, twenty nineteen. The concern is that you raise the minimum wage, and what goes with that are an increase in prices, and then that hurts people that are on fixed incomes. Take it, Tom. It's all yours. Haha. <laughs> well. I disagree. I, I think the increase in the minimum wage won't necessarily affect prices. Uh, what it will do is provide uh, more opportunities for people in the community to buy the things they need, uh, such as food, pay for rent, uh, pay for utilities, uh, really participate in the community, Jamie. Right now, here in Hamilton, there are 29,333 people who are going to work every single day And they're not earning enough at their jobs to move out of poverty. Um, So they're Hamilton's working poor. So that's who the minimum wage increase would would benefit. And you're right. It's it's a significant boost. But quite frankly, we need a significant boost. Minimum wage has been languishing for too long in this province. And while it's at 1140 right now, uh, it comes nowhere close to meeting what workers actually need to earn at their jobs uh, to meet their basic needs. And and so we're encouraged. The government has decided to move forward on this, and uh, it's being supported by the NDP as well. The challenge, of course, is that uh, there are people in business who uh, will say this is too far too fast. And I sympathize with that, uh, but the fact remains that those businesses didn't necessarily need to pay the bare minimum. Um, minimum wage is, is really a legislative floor, and uh, 11.40 an hour is, is, quite frankly, as I said, way too low. Right. And, and so we have many other businesses in Hamilton who've, who've taken a different approach. They're living wage employers, and we have some great examples here in Hamilton, like Cake and Loaf Bakery, like Mustard Seed Co-op, like Dominion Pattern Works, and many others who said, we, we want to set a higher standard. And so they're paying their employees a living wage. And what they've seen as a result is more productivity, uh, more efficiencies, less turnover, less absenteeism. And they're actually doing very well. Taking Cake and Loaf just as an example, since adopting a living wage, they opened a new location at the market. They hired seven, maybe eight new employees now. And, and they're doing very well. And, um, and so minimum wage increase doesn't need to be the economic boogeyman that uh, businesses are portraying it as. Well, the, and you know what? The, the, the example they're using in this HuffPost op-ed piece 
is they're using food costs uh, as their example, and they're talking about restaurants and how you know restaurant profit margins are at five percent, and if you, this this is going to cause your average restaurant bill to increase by eight percent, I would argue that most people that are out eating in a restaurant aren't really going to care about the eight percent bump or or really or really notice it because they've already got the disposable income to go and have their their meal out or their night out or whatever. Um, I think these are excuses. I think that there's not enough discussion, frankly, um, about the positive ripple effects of having people earning um, a livable uh, wage, as you say, Tom. You know, there. You mentioned a few things there um, about you know lack of. uh, There's great costs that go with uh, turnover of employees and all of that stuff. But bigger than that is the overall social cost. Like now we're now we're giving people a chance to, as you said, um, <clears throat> participate more fully in the economy, um, giving them uh, a chance to become less dependent upon social assistance um, and charity. And um, you know, I, I see that as a greater uh, benefit as a whole to our society. Yeah, absolutely, Jamie. And, you know, they say it's part of the American dream. I suppose it's the Canadian dream as well. You work hard, you put in your hours, and you expect to be able to to move out of poverty, provide for your families. But today, far too many people, far too many working people, and it's 1.7 million here in Ontario, are not able to get off that treadmill of of low-wage work. And unfortunately, it is harming our economy. You know, we know well, and it's harming healthcare too. If they, you know, oh, yeah. if, if you're a if you're a mother or a father or, or a, a couple trying to raise a, a baby, and you're having to hold down two jobs, three jobs sometimes just to make ends meet. The family's not associating. There's stress there. There's mental health issues that come with that. Uh, possibly. Um, you know, addiction issues that could come with that as well. And then that becomes taxing on the healthcare system, which is paid for with everybody's tax dollars. So let's think a little bit bigger than, you know, the price of uh, our restaurant bill going up by seven or 8%. Exactly. And I, I know for most Hamiltonians, we drive down the street, look at the uh, lineups that the Tim Hortons drive through. They're, right. not, hurting. They're not hurting right now. And uh, I think there is some capacity to absorb uh, some of those wage costs. And it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, prices are necessarily going to go up. But they go up anyway, right? We, we hear about the, the cost of coffee beans going up. And we have, yeah, because of the weather, because yeah, of whatever. We have no way of verifying this. But, you know, if I want to uh, go purchase a coffee and I know the person on the other end of the counter is able to go home at night and provide medication for a sick child, well, that has some value for me as a, as a consumer. And I think consumers are starting to demand that the places they shop at treat their employees with respect and dignity. And, and that's part and parcel of uh, why we're, we're strongly supporting $15 an hour as a wage floor. It's incredible how, um, how, how little, a little bit of investment in human beings and the human spirit pays off. You said it earlier, uh, you're using the cake and loaf uh, example. <clears throat> what you end up with are, um, you, you, sh- you, you know, you show some appreciation and caring for the employees and the next thing you know the employees are giving it back to you double um it it, it's it's been that has been the case forever and a day that's human nature um but somehow we got on this train of 
you know, no, 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 me, me, me. I, I don't have to look at the big picture. I only have to look at myself, I, you know, and, and that's it. And then we've ended up with this big mess. And then everybody says, well, I guess my tax dollars go to help feed the poor and this and that and the other thing. It's it's a bad a bad way. With the, with the increase in minimum wage, I think we have a chance to see a new way of doing things. And if we see uh, the benefits that you've pointed out, um, that's going to be a very good thing for us uh, in, in terms of changing our overall mindset. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned healthcare as well, Jamie, and, and that's absolutely true. People who are living in poverty are far more likely to be sick, to have chronic diseases, right. suffer, suffer from depression or asthma or, or and a eat, number of they eat terribly. Things. They eat terribly, which exactly. leads which leads to can lead to obesity and other health issues, diabetes, yep. um, all of that. It's all connected, man. It's all and, connected. And it's having a huge cost for taxpayers down the line as well. Uh, we know how much it costs to keep somebody in a hospital bed for, for a day. And, you know, in comparison, a, a $3, $3.5 increase to the minimum wage is, is a very smart business investment from, from my perspective anyway. So, Tom, uh, in your world, um, are, are you hearing a tremendous amount of blowback to the increase uh, in minimum wage? Are you just being flooded with... Uh, businesses and commerce people saying this is a disaster this is going to kill jobs you know every time i pick up a media report they're they're quoting somebody who's saying oh i'm going to cut out hours cut jobs and raise prices well i think the silent majority of businesses understand that uh, there's value in treating their employees with dignity and, and ensuring that they have enough at their job to to meet their basic needs and we have a as I said, a growing number of employers here in Hamilton uh, who were uh, happy to pay a living wage and stand up for that. And uh, this morning I presented at the Bill 148 hearings with uh, Tim Simmons, who owns a small uh, uh, wedding coordinator business, uh, Heritage Weddings, uh, in Hamilton. And he talked about how paying his employees more has meant a strong uh, business case for him and a, a better bottom line. And, and we have lots of businesses that are agreeing with that. There's going to be others out there, um, that, you know, some of the big chain stores and some of the franchises who are going to do the minimum that's necessary for their employees. And, and unfortunately, they need to be compelled by legislation to, to pay uh, a wage that, that values their employees. And, and they're going to complain about that, and we understand that. But throughout history, there's been examples of, of businesses adapting. And whether it was health and safety standards 50 years ago or ending child labor 100 years ago, you know, at the time, business said, no, we can't do this. We, you, we have to employ children to, to do the jobs we need done in this business. Well, it wasn't right then, and, and they adapted. And same with health and safety standards, making sure their employees uh, worked in safe conditions. There were costs associated with that, but they adapted. Uh, and, and I have faith that business will do the same thing this time with a minimum wage increase, and it will benefit our economy as a whole. Yeah, b- business has gotten way too focused on EBITDA and, and just lines on, on uh, spreadsheets and on uh, you know balance sheets and 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 that kind of thing and and as a society we've gotten away from the idea that you know we we still wouldn't we all still like to have a good life be able to enjoy our days not be stressed out not be having to get up every morning and wonder if we we can survive this day like get up every day and then, well, you know this Tom there are people in our city that get up every day and their full-time job is to survive that 24-hour period and then they get to do it all again 
Exactly. And whether it's, whether it's a parent working, you know, three or four part-time jobs, yeah. not being able to spend the time they need with their kids, that's having a huge impact on family life in our society. Sure it is. And, and you know, that's, that's causing a multitude of problems, as you already pointed out. You know, if that parent was working a minimum wage job at $15 even, maybe they could, uh, you know, spend more time with their family. Maybe that opens up other jobs for people in the community who are currently unemployed. And, and so there are economic benefits and, and societal benefits as well. There's no, I'm, I'm just going to say it out loud, there is no downside to this. There is no downside to this uh, for us as a society, none whatsoever. And everybody should be applauding it because it's going to solve a lot of the problems that the same people who are criticizing the increase in minimum wage, uh, it's going to solve a lot of problems for those for those people in other areas of their life, both business-wise and personal, just by doing this. And, and I firmly believe that. I know you do too, Tom. Um, so listen, thank you very much for spending some time uh, here with us today. Always happy to have you on the program and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I'm just looking at a TV monitor here in our studio uh, uh, of O.J. Simpson's appeals for parole. He, right now as we speak live, is in uh, Nevada um, making his case for release to a parole board. And I don't have the sound up. I haven't been able to really... I've been doing this show, so I've been able to listen to the OJ show. But um, my impression, uh, from what I'm seeing, he's being the same old OJ. Uh, certainly, from his facial expressions, he's he. It appears that he's being jocular, um, um, you know, turning on his psychopath's charm and trying to, uh, you know, sell it and win people over. And one uh, thing he was quoted as saying in, in today is that he's led a, led a conflict-free life. <laughs> you know what? If I'm on that parole board and I hear him say that, uh, right away he's going back in the clink. And hopefully that is the decision that they make for this idiot, that he has to remain locked up. This guy is uh, a case study in, in sociopath. Just unbelievable. And yeah, he's done nine years in uh, Nevada jail for roughing some guys up over selling his memorabilia. What does that tell you? Like, you know, the guy got away with a double homicide and, you know, was found criminally responsible after the criminal trial for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. And then he goes and does his thing, heads back out to the golf course and so on and so forth, and then and then goes to Vegas and finds some guys that have, are selling his memorabilia, even if they even if they got it through ill means. The decision he makes to go in there and rough them up over some football junk um, after what he has gotten away with and what he has been through tells you everything you need to know about the mind of a crackpot like O.J. Simpson. There's no excuse for letting this guy out. He, They've got to find... I know the law is the law, and, and they work within the law, and they work within the processes that they have, but they've, but they've got to find a way to keep this guy in. And I sure hope, as usually happens with psychopaths, they usually talk themselves out of what they're 
trying to get. They say too much, they say the wrong thing, and back you go. You know, hopefully that'll be the case. Anyway, we're going to talk to a lawyer now. Jordan Donich is a criminal lawyer with Donich Law in Toronto. Jordan, thanks for being on the program. Great, thanks for having me. You heard my, uh, you heard my rant and rave. I, you know, I, th- this is how I feel, but I also recognize uh, that uh, on both sides of the 49th parallel, lawyers and, and parole boards are kind of hamstrung often by the laws and the processes that are set down in black and white, aren't they? Yeah, and, that, and that's what you want, right? You don't want feelings and emotion to influence judgment. Or no, but you want common sense to be a part of it, and very often in law that doesn't exist, unfortunately. That's the well, frustration for a lot of people that litigate. Anyway, go ahead. It's, it, you see, it's good to not have emotion and common sense, as you would put it, interfere with judgment if you're that person, right? If you're a person in that position right. who's perhaps been wrongfully accused, right? Everyone has to stop and think for a second here. Let's assume, just for argument's sake, he actually didn't do the murder, yep. right? Okay. Let's just assume in the universe that's the fact um, for a second, and, 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 and the finding of the court, the acquittal is correct. Why is it fair to him, assuming that's true, that that would impact this process adversely? if he's legitimately an innocent guy. So we have to turn our brains to the other side for a second. Again, we're not advocating for one side or another, but that is what you want in a system. You want it to operate on principle, on, on, on law, legal principles, foundation, and logic, not on emotion. Yeah, if it operated on emotion, we'd have chaos and anarchy. There's, yeah, you're, you're, making, an, you're making an excellent, an excellent it used, point. It used to operate on emotion, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and thankfully we're not there because what happens if you get to the poor person when the system gets it wrong, right? How, how, that is how our system And that happens. Our system is built to let nine guilty people walk away then have one good person go to jail and the system get it wrong. And, 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 you know, you have to remember that, right? It, this is not um, um, a popularity contest. This is um, about legal principles and evidence. And, and, and again, um, it, but it's easy, right? It's very easy to um, take the emotional arguments. Yeah. The, uh, the problem with talk show hosts is we operate in the court of public opinion and, and uh, not, the, not a court of law. That's why we bring you guys onto the show uh, to, to straighten things out. In the, in the case of O.J. Simpson, uh, though, Jordan, um, you know, he's done nine years of a sentence that I believe was uh, set at between nine and 33 years for armed robbery, which he was convicted of in 2008. Um you know, you're an educated guy. You've got lots of experience at this. Um, when you look at it, what, what do you see as the possibilities for him uh, getting parole? Well, but for his history, I think he would be released. Right. Okay? So, so but for the history, but for the, all the baggage that comes with him to this process, I think he would be released. The question that's going to be determined and what this decision is going to turn on is how much that history influences the board members. Right, because um, like in anything, uh, whether it's lawyers or judges or experts, you know, we're all human beings. And like it or not, uh, we are influenced at some level by the things we know that we can't unknow, the things that we've seen that we can't unsee. Um, you know, and, and I wonder, uh, Jordan, if 
when it comes to parole boards, not courts, but parole boards, uh, whether, you know, politics plays any role in, in that. Um, so, so it does, it, it could, in, in the context of maintaining confidence in our justice system, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's how that may be relevant, right? If this is a guy who's released, that'll completely undermine our public trust our public confidence in, the, in our justice system, in our correctional system, that is certainly a factor that can be considered, right? So, so in terms of, you know, the political influence, that's where it would be determined and weighed uh, in the decision to grant parole. But to be clear, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, when you go before a parole board, um, the, uh, the information that you're gathering as a member of the parole board through your interviews and data collection or whatever, at the end of the day, you know, it's a totally subjective decision you make as a member of that, that board, right? You're not, you're not strangle held by uh, a list of uh, check boxes that if he gets, uh, you know, 25 out of 29 of them correctly checked off, he's out. It's not, it's not a formula situation, is it? So there are elements that must be addressed, right? Whether, for example, the offender will, will have a, a, a beneficial interest in being released and, and whether there's a public safety right, concern. Yeah. But yeah, beyond that, you're right. It's a subjective analysis, and that's good and bad, okay? Um, it's good if um, there's not a lot of factors that can work against you, and it could be, you know, uh, disadvantageous uh, in the case uh, of someone such as O.J. Simpson. Yeah, and I have to, again, uh, you know, got my own bias, which is very clear, but I have to believe that the the thing that he has working against him more than anything, suppose he's been an absolute model prisoner for nine years and, and uh, you know, has attended courses, has, uh, you know, behaved well, has helped other inmates, what have you, has, uh, you know, cleaned the place, whatever the deal is. Um, it's just, it just seems to me that it's going to be absolutely Impo- difficult, if not impossible, for him to overcome all of the things in the past, including the civil uh, finding of, uh, you know, that he was involved in the wrongful uh, death or, uh, or responsible for the wrongful death of, of Ron Goldman and, and Nicole Brown Simpson. Um, the acquittal is one thing in the criminal trial. I mean, so many people consider that to be a sham. But then, but then there was the civil trial where he didn't do so well. And then you had this thing. I guess to me, Jordan, if I'm sitting on that parole board, th- this is about a pattern of behavior. And even the stuff that came in between the criminal trial and the civil trial, the way he conducted himself when he was free of the criminal charges out in public uh, make you wonder. The things he said... You know, really, his lack of contrition and his arrogance were fully on display after the uh, criminal trial. And and they were very well publicized. And I don't know if he's going to be able to overcome that. So keep in mind, right, he's already served, what, what almost a decade. Right? Yep, so, yep. so that that has to count for something. Sure. Right? That's not nothing. That's a lot of life for a guy with money <laughs> and freedom right. um, uh, of not being able to enjoy himself. So So there is something that's been done. So we all have to remember that. 
Um, but you're right. The question then is going to become, um, is this a guy based on his background, based on you know all these ancillary issues weighed together collectively that could still pose a danger, right? That's, I think, what the analysis is going to come down to. Is this a guy who, who, who is a danger to others if released? Now, even if he is released, keep in mind, he, may, he doesn't necessarily walk free on the streets. He'll, he could be on probation. He could be on a curfew. There could be added safeguards in place uh, to address uh, perhaps other issues. Yeah. Um, so uh, Jordan uh, Donich is my guest. He's a criminal lawyer uh, in, in Toronto. Um, Jordan, is there a big difference between parole boards and parole board process in the United States compared to Canada? Or are they very similar? So they are similar in principle, but, you know, the laws are different. So, for, you know, for example, here in Canada, um, uh, it would be his history um, would likely be considered. And I'll tell you why. Um, you know, you have somebody who's speeding, for example. Um, they're, they're stopped by police, um, but the, the police can't prove it at trial. Okay, So for whatever reason, there's an issue with the case that, 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 that does not allow the government to prove it. The person is still a speeder, though. Right? This is still a guy who speeds. So, so just because someone wasn't convicted doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right? Doesn't mean it's not a real event in the universe. So that would likely be considered here um, um, in the analysis for release. Yeah, I keep thinking that a lot of these parole board uh, people are. Oh, he's. I'm just looking at the TV screen. He's getting up and moving now. I don't know whether the the hearing is concluded, but it's pretty hard to forget. Um, it looks like his kids are stepping in now to uh, say something. Um, it's pretty hard to forget the image of the uh, bloody fancy Italian shoe print and, you know, all of that stuff. It's, I, I mean, all these years later, we're talking 1994 here, these images have not left the minds of right. most of us, have and they? That's, right. So the images are there, but we have to remember that's all been litigated. Yeah. And there's been a determination based on all those evidence, but based on all those images. So the starting point in law is what, what the outcome of that was which is an acquittal. So if you want to get the reasoning straight, you start there. You can't go back to the evidence, because that's already been figured out, right? And then the decision was, it's an acquittal. The question is, okay, let's, notwithstanding the acquittal, could this guy still be a danger? Even if we assume the acquittal's true, is, is it possible that he is still a dangerous guy to the public, and we ought to not release him? So, Jordan, I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb here and uh, bet. Does he get out, or does he stay in? Um, well, I'm not much of a better, but, um, you know, I, 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 he's done a lot of time for this robbery, yeah. right? Um, that's nine, you know, um, I, I think, um, he will get out, but I can see why he wouldn't, um, if that puts the answer correctly. All right. Uh, very well, um, fence sat, like, uh, <laughs> Like, like a typical lawyer. You guys will not make any guarantees of anything. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm kidding. Jordan Donich, a criminal lawyer with Donich Law in Toronto. Uh, thanks for taking some time to be with us today. And don't bill me for this, okay? No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, here we are. We're in the midst of uh, wedding season. And the website 538 has done a, a survey of couples 
discussing what songs they would ban from their wedding. Turns out many dance numbers where where groups of people can dance to a synchronized uh, a dance such as the Macarena and the Cha-Cha Slide are out. <laughs> Why would couples not want those songs at their wedding? Uh, see if you can guess some of the ones that are on here. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. As we roll along here, I might sprinkle a couple into the conversation. But see if you can guess. And what what wedding songs do you absolutely not, songs you don't want to hear at a wedding that maybe you've heard that stuck out like a sore thumb to you and you said, wow, um, I can't believe they're playing that song. That seems, uh, or inappropriate or whatever. I mean, every wedding throws in, I uh, saw her standing there with the Beatles, you know, everybody gets up. But I don't know. Twist and Shout, that's another one. It's, you hear a lot at, at weddings. I don't know. I've, I've stopped listening to music after 1990. I don't even really know what's out there after 90 to a large degree. 905-645-3221, star 9900. YMCA, Village People? No? Bring it to me here. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Well, we're going to the expert. Uh, the expert, uh, of course, is Michael Coombs of Michael Coombs Entertainment. He's a wedding DJ in Toronto. Michael, good to have you on the program today. Hey, thanks for having me. Are you related to Ernie Coombs? <laughs> I get that all the time. No, I am not. Oh, that's too bad. Then we're going to have to let you go. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> all right, thanks for having me. Okay, good. all right, bye. <laughs> all right, so, um, so wed- wedding songs. First of all, how much, before we get into the most banned wedding songs, according to this website, how tough is it to be a wedding DJ? In 2017, I'm thinking there's a lot of pressure on you. Oh, definitely. You have to realize that, you know, for a bride and groom, this is probably the biggest party that they will ever throw in their lives. And besides purchasing a house, it's probably the most money they'll spend on anything, period, in their lifetime. So there is a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation. And you have to be ready and prepared and walk in there knowing exactly what their likes are, what their dislikes are, and what, what, kind of direct, what kind of direction they want to go in on their actual wedding day, music-wise, anyways. So my guess, Michael, is that you do a lot of consulting with the, with the wedding couple prior to the event itself, right, so that you can iron out uh, any issues or as many issues as possible in advance. Oh, definitely. That's, that's probably one of the key and most important things. It's the actual process leading up to the wedding. I spend... Easily, I spend with a couple face-to-face, an hour, maybe two, depending on what their needs or what the requirements are. But a lot of the pre-work goes into it, finding out, you know, what are the genres of music they like, what are the artists that they like, uh, what, what songs do they dance to in high school, university, college. I like to get a complete feel for what they're into and what they love and ultimately what they don't want played. It's kind of what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes anyway. So. Yeah. So um, uh, do, do they ever get into, like, it's highly emotional, the choice of the music. Is it not? Do they not? Do couples kind of get tense, and do they ever get uh, kind of bickering about that when they're sitting with you? Uh, not necessarily bickering. They, they pretty much, I give them some homework ahead of time so that when they walk in, we kind of know exactly what, what, their ex, what my expectations are of them with regards to preparing the music. So there really isn't a lot of bickering. There are sometimes a few songs here and there that they don't agree on or artists. And uh, that kind of comes out on the, during our actual meeting. But overall, they're pretty good. They're pretty much nine times out of ten, they're on the same page anyway. And, and do you find that uh, the families 
uh, start meddling and start interfering. So you've got the you've got the wedding couple. You're working with them on the playlists and so on and so forth. And then you've got you know you've got Aunt Harriet and you've got the the bride's father who wants certain tunes and you got to stick handle that somehow, don't you? Yeah, it is a. You do have to manage that, but most of that happens on the actual day of. So. <laughs> and it depends how drunk they are the evening of as well. So usually it goes okay, but sometimes you will get somebody that's a bit more aggressive and uh, needs to hear that song next because I'm leaving now. I'm like, well, <laughs> if yeah. you're leaving now, I'll talk to you later. This is not about the two of you. It's ultimately about the bride and groom and making sure they're having a fantastic day, not because you can't stay up past 10 and you need to go home early, right? So, so do people automatically assume, uh, Michael Coombs, that at a wedding that they're, that they're allowed uh, and welcome to go up and make a request of the wedding DJ? Is that assumption in place, and is that an incorrect assumption? Uh, I wouldn't say the assumption's in place. There are always a one or two people that believe it's their right. And... My, my whole philosophy is this. You know what? If the dance floor is packed, if the bride and groom are having a fantastic time, if you have 200 guests and there are 200 guests dancing on the dance floor, you kind of leave the DJ alone. Obviously, he or she knows what they're doing. Let, their, let them do their thing. If there's 200 people there and only 10 people are dancing, then you kind of have to open up the doors and say, whatever you guys want, we'll make it happen as long as we get the party started. Right. So that's how you view it as a wedding DJ. You view uh, your role as being the vital organ, the central nervous system of the party. You've got, you know, you're the, the stimulator, the battery, the energy of, of the party to get it going. Definitely, for sure. Definitely. All right. So before we get to the most banned wedding songs, let's talk about some that are like super popular uh, that you're just that you're getting over and over and over again that are sort of must be played songs at at weddings these days. Uh, you know what? Every for me, every wedding is different, and because I do so many multicultural weddings and interracial weddings and interfaith weddings, uh, you, there's a variety. I can't say there's one or two particular songs, but things that I see a lot are obviously anything by Bruno Mars. Uh, funny enough, R. Kelly's Ignition gets a lot of play. I'm not sure if we'll be playing that much anymore, but. Uh, I get a lot of requests for that. Depending on the age group, a lot of the kids who grew up in the 90s, sorry, a lot of the couples that grew up in the 90s, they're requesting Backstreet Boys, Spice Girls, things along those lines. And then we get into maybe like some of the classic rock stuff like Shook Me All Night Long, ACDC, yeah. Don't Stop yeah. Believing, Journey, things along. Can you to play Don't Stop Believing by Journey uh, at weddings these days? Yeah, definitely. That's Probably one of the biggest songs, biggest crowd reaction songs at every wedding I do. You know, Not every wedding, but the majority of them. That song is an absolute mystery to me. I, I've never seen a song in the history of popular music enjoy the comeback that it has enjoyed in the longevity of said comeback the way that particular song is that came out on journey's album escape in 1982 i remember because that was new music when i was a teenager and i remember it being played on top 40 along with a couple of other hit singles that came off that album but it it did its time on the top 40 and then it it went away for years and years and years and then i think it was that glee tv show that brought it back to life and and it was like everybody, it was like the first time everybody in that generation had heard the song, and it had way more popularity and traction than it ever had the first time around. Yeah, definitely. I believe it was actually before Glee. I believe it was in the last episode of Sopranos, if I'm not mistaken. It was in the Sopranos series. It was a big, one of the big moments during the series. That's when it kind of 
It appeared there, yeah. Yeah, that's where it was a big comeback. So, but it's, you know, it's not one of those songs that you play early in the evening. No. Later in the night, 12.30, 1 o'clock-ish. Yeah, when everybody's half cut and they're all screaming the chorus and doing that. All right, so so uh, let's start running down uh, the list of uh, the most banned wedding songs. Uh, we'll go from bottom to top, and there's there's eleven in this list. I'm I'm not sure. Well, they consider two. T- okay, number eleven is "Love Shack" by the B52s. Uh, so people don't want that played at weddings. I, I'm not sure why. What is it about the B52s? I mean, what if the song was "Rock Lobster" by the B52s? That that one. I think would be popular. Talk to me about the the B fifty twos here. Uh, B fifty twos. That's again. It really depends on the age of the couple. That's the big thing. Uh, Love Shack is hit or miss. Some weddings it works. Some weddings it doesn't. And I can understand why it's on the list. Again, it's one of those. It's a hit or miss. Some people love it. Some people don't. Rock Lobster is a way better crowd tune than Love Shack is. Don't you think? It can be for the right crowd, definitely. Okay, uh, number ten. These are the uh, most banned uh, wedding songs. Number 10 is Shout by the Isley Brothers. You know you make me want to shout. Put my hands up and shout. That song. What? what? That, that actually surprised me. I was surprised to see that one on because, again, depending on depending on the couple, depending on their audience, uh, it still typically gets a very, very good reaction. If played at the right time, if played a little bit later in the evening, it still gets, it gets a good gets the crowd really into it, so I was kind of surprised to see that one on there. All right, number nine is Happy by Pharrell Williams. I, I didn't like Happy from the minute it hit the, the you know, <laughs> it, I hated that song from the beginning, and all I can think about when I hear that song is his hat. Um, <laughs> so, I, yeah, okay, so Happy, give me your thoughts on that. Banned. Banned, yeah, I would say that's banned right now. Uh, it was It was good when it first came out, but it's it died very quickly. It, very quickly. It, it burned itself out, didn't it? Oh, very fast. Definitely. Okay, number eight is uh, Wobble by VIC, whatever that is. Yeah, Never heard what? it. I could, yeah, I can tell by looking at this list, it's mostly Americans that uh, contributed to this list because you see things on here that you typically don't play in a, at a Canadian wedding or at a GTA wedding. All right. And like Wobble is one of those ones. Same with the Cha-Cha Slide, Cupid Shuffle, and Electric Boogie. Those are all like electric slide dances. Which is okay, crazy. now you're blowing my list here. I'm counting sorry, them down sorry, and you're sorry, jumping ahead sorry, of me here. Sorry. You wedding DJs are always queuing up the next record. <laughs> all right, so number, number seven here is The Hokey Pokey. Now, I find that to be absolute blasphemy that it would be banned from... A wedding list. The, who doesn't want to do the hokey pokey? You put your left foot in, you take your left foot out, you put your right foot in, and you shake it all about. Come on. It's fun. I think the, la- I think the last time I heard the po- hokey pokey, I was seven years old. Like, <laughs> I think the biggest concern is because the people are writing these songs on their list, you know they've actually heard them at a wedding. And my concern is what DJ is playing the hokey pokey at a wedding? Like, come on. <laughs> I'm with you. Number six, uh, I think you mentioned this one, Electric Boogie, Electric Slide by Marcia Griff- Griffiths. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. Oh, uh, well, you've probably you've probably seen the Electric Slide, but it's it's a line dance. It's a line dance. Oh, that explains it. I as soon as I see line dancing, I just turn my back and go over to the bar and, yep. and get another beer. Uh, number five, YMCA by the Village People. A little long in the tooth, I guess that song, eh? 
Oh, yeah. And I think that's more geared towards like a grade eight dance where the kids kind of get into it. But I I have not played that in over 10, 10 years at least. Right. I'm, I'm just going to I'm just going to talk to our technical producer, Luke, for a second. Can you get the cha-cha slide brought up for us? Can you find that, Luke, so we can play some of that? The cha-cha slide. All right. You let me know when you got that and we'll, we'll play some. Number four is the Cupid Shuffle by Cupid. Never heard of it. That's the modern version of the electric slide. It's more of a... Holy mackerel, I better get with it. Yeah, again, this list is very American. Whenever I have American clients, I always see this on their playlist. It's huge in the States, but not so much up here. All right, number three, the Macarena. Hey, Macarena. I have never played that song. (laughs) Why? Because you've simply refused? It's just... I've simply refused. It's a bridge too far for you as a DJ? Yeah, it's just... It belongs in a TV commercial, not necessarily at a wedding. All right, let's uh, play a little bit of the, this. Is the cha-cha slide? Have a listen to this. All right, now we're gonna do the basic step to the left. Take it back now, y'all. One hop this time. Right foot, left stump. Left foot, left stump. Cha-cha, real smooth. Turn it out. Oh, I can see why that's banned. Get that out of there. Get that out of there. Come on. Michael. Michael Coombs is my guest. He's a wedding DJ. That would get that would burn out fast, wouldn't it? Yeah. Again, it's it's a line dance. It's it's big in the States, not so much up here. I actually did an American wedding this year. The couple was from New York and they came up to Toronto to have their destination wedding, believe it or not. And they wanted the cha-cha slide. It was all about the cha-cha slide and the Cupid shuffle. So, holy moly! Wow. Um, and number one, number one on the most banned wedding songs is the Chicken Dance. <laughs> Again, my concern is obviously <laughs> people have heard this song played somewhere else, and who is the DJ that's still playing these? That's the biggest concern I have. <laughs> like, come on! It's it's 2017. Let's. The chicken dance kind of goes in the same same category as the hokey pokey. I haven't heard that or played that since I was like seven or eight years old. How how much how much does it cost to have a good wedding DJ uh, take uh, to to do his or her thing at an event these days? And and how should people approach choosing a wedding DJ? Because if the role is that important, you got to be careful about who you choose. Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest thing the couple needs to really sit down and think about is how important is the party to the success of their wedding. If they have a big drinking crowd and nobody dances, you don't need to spend a lot of money on a DJ. You'll probably get somebody for $1,000, $1,200. That would probably be pretty good for you. But if you want to have an amazing party, you want to make sure everybody's out there and just having the time of their lives, people leaving saying that was the best wedding I've ever been to, you're probably looking at three grand and up from there. So, Okay, so ju- judge your crowd uh, judge your crowd accordingly is the is the rule there. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Well, it's not even so much bad to judge your crowd. The bride and groom have to sit there and say, do we want to have a killer party? Is this who we are? You know, some people, they don't dance. A lot of weddings, they don't dance. They just mm-hmm. kind of hang out. And But that's them. That's their style. That's their personality. That's fine. You know what? If it's not a priority. Some people, the priority is the food. Some people, the priority is having an amazing decor, flowers, things along those lines. So it's really the person's personal preference that makes a big difference. 
All right. Um, Michael Coombs, good to talk to you today about uh, wedding songs and wedding dances and all of that stuff. Uh, pleasure. you got a great sense of humor. Good luck to you, and uh, enjoy the rest of wedding season. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a fantastic day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.